kind of look at the big picture of what God is doing, and we're going to wrap that up today as we come to this book. It's a little hard to do revelation in one message, so you can imagine there's things we're not going to talk about, uh, but I'm going to highlight some of the important things in this book. And let's pray as we begin. Father, thank you for your word. How awesome, how majestic are these scenes that we're going to see today. When we see you seated on the throne in heaven in all of your glory, when we see Jesus, our risen Savior and Lord, there interceding before your throne for us, and all of creation bowing in reverence to you. Father, what an awesome picture it is. Help us to hear what you want to say to us this morning. Help us to live as your people and to be the kind of church that you have called us to be in the world in which we live. And we ask that all for your honor and glory. Amen. One of the popular television shows in recent years has been the Extreme Makeover Home Edition show, and I'm sure, how many of you watch that? You know, do you see that? Yeah, a whole, whole bunch of people have probably seen that. And You know, the premise of the show is that they look for these families that are struggling, and they're struggling through no fault of their own. Often it's something like a job loss has occurred in the family, or maybe there's a special need where one of their children has a medical condition that requires, uh, you know, a great care. And these families are struggling to make ends meet to begin with, and then they have these special needs. And, and so what they do with the show is they go in, they interview the family, they find out what their needs are, they talk to all of the children to see what their interests are, and then they send them away for four or five days in a horde of workers descend on the home like ants and they rebuild it and then when they bring the family back you know the show they've got a bus parked in front of it so when the family gets out they can't see their house and you know they're all excited they're anticipating this and then the crowd begins to shout move that bus move that bus move that bus and when the bus pulls away the family sees their home and they are just overwhelmed with joy and sometimes you watch those little kids, they're just, they're just shaking, they're so excited, they can't believe this is their house, and there are tears of joy. And when they enter into this new home and begin to see how every room was really tailor-made for their needs, they just are uh, incredibly blessed by what has happened. Well, I think that's a picture of what heaven is going to be like. That's a little picture of what it's going to be like when we see this place that God is preparing for us. Jesus said to his disciples in John chapter 14 that in my Father's house are many rooms, and I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And Jesus, who knows you and loves you better than anyone else, is preparing a place specifically for you and for me. And I think when we see that, it is going to be awesome. It will be glorious. Today we're going to look at this last book of Revelation, and we're going to cover some of the highlights here, and I want to give you just a little bit of background on the book before we jump into it. The book of Revelation was written by the Apostle John when he was on the island of Patmos. Now, Patmos was a Roman prison colony. I mean, you weren't sent... Th- this wasn't a Greek isle to go see, you know, on a vacation. This was a Roman penal colony, and he was there in captivity. The year is around 95 A.D. It's at the end of the first century. And the Roman emperor, Domitian, was trying to stamp out Christianity. And this wave of persecution had been unleashed against the church in the Roman Empire. 
And so Jesus gave John this revelation to encourage the churches and to strengthen the churches at that time. Now, Revelation can be a difficult book to read and to interpret because of all the symbols and numbers and images that are there. And in a message like this, I can't cover all of that. Instead, what I want us to focus on today is on what is clear and what is stunning and what is awesome and worship-inspiring in the book of Revelation. Because John's vision isn't just written to show us what's going to happen in the future, and it's not written so we can kind of get our calculators and calendars out and figure out everything. John's revelation was written to show us what is at the center of life, at the heart of everything God reigns. And the God who reigns is the one who sent his son to die on a cross and rescue sinners. And for all of eternity, we are going to see and savor and celebrate his goodness and glory. So what do we see in the book of Revelation? Well, first of all, we see the risen Christ in chapter 1. When Jesus came to earth at his first coming, there was nothing remarkable about his appearance. In fact, Isaiah the prophet said about uh, the Messiah, about Jesus, that he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. There was nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. In other words, people weren't attracted to Jesus because he was the most handsome or studly kind of guy out there. You know, it wasn't his outward appearance that was the thing that attracted people to Jesus. It was his person. It was his character, it was his love and compassion, it was his truth and authority and power, the things that he did that attracted people to Jesus. There was something different about him. But in Revelation, the vision John saw of Jesus is awe-inspiring. I'd like to read for us in chapter 1, verses 12 to 18. John said, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned around, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And then he placed his right hand on me, and he said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades." This is Jesus in all of his glory. And John struggles with the language to even describe him. He uses these images to describe this person he saw, this son of man, in all of his brilliance and glory, his authority, his power, and he fell at his feet as though dead. This is the Jesus who will come again. In Revelation 1-7, the scripture says that he will come with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the people of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. 
you know, just outside the sanctuary to our church. If you haven't looked at that painting that is there recently, that's a painting that is this verse. And I appreciate so much. Some of you are new may not know that uh, Pat Post was the one who did the watercolor painting that's up there, and my wife did the calligraphy there. It's here of Revelation 1-7. But it is a beautiful picture of all the peoples of the earth in that day looking up toward heaven when Jesus is going to return. And for those who are, you know, for those who know him, this is going to be a day of great rejoicing. And for those who have turned against him or rejected him, it will be a day of judgment, a day when they will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. But that day is coming. That day is coming. And if you haven't looked at that painting in a while, I just encourage you today even to turn around and take a look at that scene of what it will be like when Jesus in all of his glory returns to earth. Well, this risen Christ, secondly, has a message for the church. And we see that message in chapters 2 and 3. Jesus has a word for the church, and his word includes both encouragement as well as warnings. And they are words that are appropriate for the church today, for us and for all churches today. The churches Jesus addressed here were in various stages of spiritual health. There are seven letters to seven churches, and what we see is that two of those churches were well commended. They were faithful. They were honoring the Lord. Those were the churches of Smyrna and Philadelphia. Two were harshly rebuked, Sardis and Laodicea. And three were given a mixed report, Ephesus, Pergamum, and Thyatira. We're going to look at that. In fact, if you look closely, what you would see is that the people in the two churches that were doing well were those that were poorer and persecuted. There is something about being uh, persecuted that refines the church. There's something about being in need that causes us to depend upon the Lord even more. And there is a refining that takes place in the church that purifies it. And these two churches that were suffering the most were the ones that were doing the best spiritually. The people in the two churches that were rebuked had it all by the world's standards. They were affluent and comfortable. And they thought, like Laodicea, that they had no needs and they couldn't see how poor they really were in spirit. The three that had the mixed report of them, Ephesus, had good teaching, but they had lost their first love. I mean, here here was good teaching that was being given, but they had lost their passion for serving the living God, and they had kind of moved on to other things and become priorities in their life. Pergamon was fighting heresy in the church. It wasn't just heresy outside the church, but it was in the church, and there were issues that needed to be addressed. Some were faithful, some were not. And Thyatira tolerated Jezebel, sexual immorality. Sexual immorality had become part of the accepted culture in their church, and it needed to be addressed. You know, I look at that and I I think in my own mind that these are the same issues that can and do weaken churches today. False teaching, sexual immorality, losing our first love. 
You know, we live in, a, in an age now where there's a whole lot of churches that are caving in on the gospel or want to say that, you know, they believe a doctrine of universalism, that in the end everybody's going to be saved or that it doesn't really matter what you believe. But that's not what Jesus said, and that is not the gospel. And again, you know, the acceptance in our culture, it's hard for us to even see it with the sexual immorality that there is all around us and being pushed and in the church today. Pornography is a big issue. Adultery, unfaithfulness, all those kind of things are real issues in the church today and need to be addressed because they weaken our faith or they weaken our testimony to the world around us. And the same thing of losing our first love. You know, remember the joy and excitement that you had when you came to know Christ as your Savior and you knew that you were forgiven? God wants us to have that passion continue to grow deeper in our relationship with Him. The closer we go to Christ, the more aware we become of our sin, the more aware we become of our need for a Savior, our need to walk with Him in humility and trust. And it should be a growing relationship with Christ. But it is so easy to have our eyes turned away to other things or get caught up in the needs and desires of this world. No wonder Jesus said, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And I think of the image that John saw, this vision John saw in chapter 1, where he saw Jesus walking among the lampstands. The lampstands in the book of Revelation are the church. A lampstand is a great image of what the church should be. The purpose of the church is to be a light to the world. I mean, we're to give light to a dark world, to stand out for Christ so that others might hear and come to know Him as Savior and Lord. And if, a, if that light goes out in the church, if the church loses the gospel, if the church is not faithfully holding up the truth of God's Word, it has no reason to exist. When the light goes out, then that church is no longer the kind of witness that God wants it to be in the world. So what kind of church will we be? Will we be faithful? Will we keep that passion for Christ and our first love? Will we hold to the authority of Scripture that this is God's Word and our guide for life and practice? And will we be faithful to share that message with the world? Thirdly, what we see in the book of Revelation is that God is at the center of it all. Chapters 4 and 5 are just this glorious picture of what worship in heaven is going to be like. And we see this scene in which the angels are gathered around the throne of heaven. There are the elders who bow down before his throne. There are the living creatures that surround it. And all of it, at the center of it all, is God. Take a look at chapter 4. And I'd like to read for us uh, verses 6 to 8. He said, Also before the throne there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. And in the center, around the throne, were four living creatures. And they were covered with eyes in front and in back. And the first living creature was like a lion, and the second was like an ox. The third had the face like a man, and the fourth was like a flying eagle. And each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under his wings. And day and night they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty 
who was and is and is to come. Now here you have this scene in heaven. God is on his throne, okay? And you have this scene where these four living creatures are around there. And they're kind of bizarre in the description to us. But it is what they represent. It is, again, using images to represent something. And they represent all of creation. The lion is the king of the wild animals, the king of the beasts. The ox was the strongest of the domesticated animals. Man, the face of man, represents all of humanity, male and female. The eagle was the greatest of the birds that soar in the air. And so here you have this image of not only the angels in heaven bowing before the throne and worshiping him, you have the 24 elders, which we believe represents like the 12 tribes of Israel in the Old Testament, the 12 apostles in the New Testament, and they're coming together to represent what? The people of God in the Old Testament, the people of God in the New Testament era. And then you have this representation of all of God's creation, worshiping him, doing what we were made to do, to have God at the heart of our life, at the center of our focus, our worship, and bowing down in reverence to him. That's how it's going to be. And what we need to remember from that is that God is on his throne in heaven no matter what we experience on earth. Rome is not in control of the world. You know, you think of how they were living in that era and Domitian, you know, he's the powerful guy who's trying to crush the church. Domitian is not in control of the world. The Lord reigns. And in our day, London is not in control of the world. Beijing's not in control of the world. Washington, D.C. is not in control of the world. All the great leaders of men are not in charge. It is the Lord who reigns. And one of my favorite psalms in the Old Testament is Psalm 93. If you have your Bible, I want you to turn there because I think this psalm gives us the same kind of image and picture that we see in the book of Revelation. And I'm going to tie a couple things together. In Psalm 93, the scripture affirms that the Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed in majesty and is armed with strength. And the world is firmly established. It cannot be moved. Your throne was established long ago, and you are from all eternity. But the seas have lifted up, O Lord. The seas have lifted up their voice, and the seas have lifted up their pounding waves. Now, what is he talking about there? Well, the sea in Scripture, both Old Testament and New Testament, refers to the evil in our world or the chaos in our world and the challenges that it presents. And so you get this image of God on his throne in heaven, but down here in the world, what's happening? It's like these breakers of the sea, these waves of evil are beating against the church, beating against our lives. And we see the temptations of the world, we see the crime and violence, we see war, we see injustice, we see suffering, sickness, disease, all those things, and they just, they just are pounding. They're like mighty waters that make it seem like you know, God, are you really in charge? You know, God, what's going on here? I just feel overwhelmed by these things. And the psalmist affirms that mightier than the thunder of the great waters and mightier than the breakers of the sea is the Lord on high. The Lord on high is mighty. And His statues stand firm and holiness adorns His house for endless days, O Lord. 
forever and ever the Lord reigns. So don't be caught up in what's going on in this world as though things are out of control because the Lord is on his throne in heaven. And we need to remember that when our trials come. Do you think that that would have been an encouraging message for the church to hear when John wrote to them? Indeed it would. And it is encouraging to us. There are many things that the world would like us to center our life around. Some of them are even good things, you know. Uh, We can find interest in sports or our hobbies or things that we enjoy doing. There can be social activities and friendships. There can be a focus sometimes, unfortunately, on money or maybe our work or politics or entertainment. And people build their lives around all of these things as though that's the most important thing in life. But there's only one thing that's worthy. There's only one thing that will satisfy us. There's only one thing that's going to last for all of eternity, and that is God. And so doesn't it make sense to build our life around him now? Doesn't it make sense that we should say to Jesus, Jesus, you are my Savior and my Lord, and I want to follow you. I want to know you better. I want to serve you in this world because for all of eternity we are going to love and worship and follow Him and come to see that that is the best way to live. That's the way that leads to joy and fulfillment and happiness for us. And so in John's vision, we see not only the Father on the throne, but we see the vision of Christ as our representative before the Father's throne. And Jesus is pictured as a lion. He's the lion of Judah. And you remember all the way back to Genesis, we talked about this, that in Genesis 49.10, when Israel or Jacob was giving the blessing to his sons, he said of Judah that the scepter will not depart from Judah until the one comes whose right it is to rule until Shiloh comes. And that is Jesus. It was a prophecy of the Messiah. He's the one whose right it is to rule. And also we see Jesus there as a lamb, a lamb looking as though he had been slain, slain for our sins. And we go back to Exodus, and we remember the Passover lamb that each household was required to take and their blood was to be shed and that blood was to be put on the doorposts of their homes as a covering so that the destroying angel would pass over and their sins would be forgiven. And we are told in 1 Corinthians that Jesus is our Passover lamb. And the angels in heaven continually cry out, Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. The lamb that was slain is the lion who rules. And Jesus stands before the Father in heaven as our advocate. He's our defense attorney, 1 John 2. He is also our mediator, the one who stands between God and man, Jesus, the one and only one who can fulfill that role. And he is our intercessor who prays for us according to the will of God, who is there before the Father's throne, praying for you and for me continually. And Jesus' presence before the throne then is a constant witness to the security of our salvation. 
we are saved because of what he has done. We can come before the Father because of what Jesus has done and continues to do on our behalf. What a glorious picture that will be. And then finally, what we see in the book of Revelation is that God's grand vision to be with his people will be realized at last. The age-old promise that I will be their God and you will be my people and I will dwell among you will be fulfilled at last. That theme runs all the way through Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. It is repeated by the prophets. This desire of God to be with his people is going to come to fruition in the end. How will that happen? Well, our world doesn't want to hear it. But one day this world as we know it will end. And this world as we know it is not going to end, you know, when a big asteroid comes out of outer space and hits our planet. It's not going to end in an environmental disaster. It's not going to end with global warming or freezing. It's not going to end by a nuclear holocaust. This world will end when Jesus the King of kings and Lord of lords returns in judgment to establish once and for all His visible kingdom on earth. You know, if you were looking for a good place to say amen, you just missed it. <laughs> you know, it's kind of funny. Uh, last, I actually gave this message last week in Pulcopa. And, uh, you know, in th that particular congregation, it was... Uh, a lot more amens in that culture as you go through this and, and kind of cheering us on. And I think there's some, something to that, not that we need to do that all the time, but there are times when things are affirmed in Scripture that are so powerful that I hope at the very least in your heart you are saying amen, let it come. Because when Jesus returns, he will put an end to sin and to death and to Satan. And in that day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And it's not just here on earth, but the Scripture says that, that it's also those that are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth will confess that He is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You know, in that day, they won't bow to Pharaoh. That's not going to happen anymore. And they won't bow to Nebuchadnezzar or Alexander the Great or Domitian. It won't be to Charlemagne or to Napoleon or to Hitler or Stalin that the peoples of the earth will bow. It will be to Jesus Christ as Lord that all will bow and worship the Son of God. The scriptures are clear, though, also, that in that day each one will stand before God to give an account for the life that he or she lived. We see that in different passages in the New Testament. All of us are going to give an account before the Lord. For the believer, our sins are forgiven. They have been covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. And that day of standing before the Lord is not for judgment, but that day will really be for rewards and for a blessing for things that have been done well in service to Him. And Jesus will look at our life and He'll look at the way we used our gifts and our talents, our time. And did we use those to serve Him and to advance His kingdom? Were we part of what He was doing in our generation? And there will be great reward. And for those who have served faithfully, Jesus will say, well done, good and faithful servant. 
But for those who do not know him, they will stand before that great white throne judgment. And the books will be open, and for all whose names were not written in the book of life, they will pass into the lake of fire and the second death. Even death and Hades will be cast into the lake of fire ultimately. And Revelation 21 and 22 gives us a glimpse of what that new heaven and new earth will be like. And we can't even imagine all that God is preparing for us. Scripture gives us glimpses of what heaven is going to be like in several experiences. Sometimes we have heard of near-death experiences where people have come back and described what they have seen on the other side, but all of that has to be checked by Scripture, has to be brought into the light of God's Word because not all of that may be accurate. And so what we read in Revelation 21 and 22 is really a beautiful picture of what's going to happen in that day. Let me read for us Revelation 21, verses 1 to 5. John said, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying that now the dwelling of God is with men and He will live with them and they will be His people and God Himself will be with them and be their God. And He will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Did you catch what he's saying there? He tells us that there'll be no more sea. No more sea. No more sin. No more evil. No more chaos. No more of the things that are part of this fallen world. There's no more death. There's no more sorrow or crying, and so every tear is wiped away from our eyes. There's no more pain, no more suffering, no more of the things that accompany aging in this life as we pass from this world. It's like that extreme makeover and that everyone gets to see this new heaven and new earth at the same time. You know, when we die now, we go into the presence of the Lord and we are there waiting what is to come along with all of the other believers who will be redeemed. And when that day comes, I don't know how God's going to do it, you know. I don't know if the angels in heaven are going to say, move that cloud, move that cloud, move that cloud, you know, and it parts and then we see the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. And coming there where we will, amen, yeah, where we will see it and God will dwell with us and we will live with Him for all of eternity. And in that day, God's grand vision to be with His people will be complete. And gathered around His throne are going to be people from every tribe, every nation, every people, and every language group. It won't be a reset button. God says he's going to make all things new. This life wasn't a mistake or an accident. Sometimes believers wonder, you know, why do we have to go through all of this? Why why couldn't God have just kind of skipped over that and brought us to the end if that's where he was intending to take us? 
it is because God knew that the only way that we would grasp his glory would be if we would know him and love him as the God who saves. You know, Eden was good, but this new heaven and new earth is going to be even better. Better by far because we will see him for who he is, the God of our salvation. And the God who walked with Adam and Eve in the garden there is going to be the God who will live with us for all of eternity. And we will see him, and we will worship him, and we will enjoy him forever. We've come to the end of the book, but the story is still being written. And the story that's being written is not the story of the gospel, but it's the story of God's work in his world. And we are a part of that. And the only question that really remains about that new heaven and new earth is, will you be there? Will you be there? Have you opened your heart to Him and asked Him to forgive your sins and to be your Savior and Lord? Have you surrendered your life to Christ and say, I get it, I understand what this is about. And Jesus, I want to serve you and I want to know you better. When you turn from your sin and ask Him to forgive you, He will come into your life and be your Savior and Lord. And for all of us who know him, I think the application for us from this message is this, that we need to live today with this great truth as our hope, the Lord reigns. And we need to live today with the awareness that we will be asked to account for the choices we have made in this life. And so honor Christ and put him first. And thirdly, we are to live today as a minister of reconciliation, a representative of God to the world so that they might see Christ in us and we might help others to know him. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, would you help us to do that? Would you help us to put you first in our life every day and to honor you with our words and our thoughts and our deeds? Would you help us to be that kind of witness in this world so that others might come to know you? And Lord, would you just fill us with great hope? In spite of trials or challenges or things that may come, you reign, and you will reign for all of eternity, and we will see that and know that in that day. Father, if there's anyone here today, if you have not made that commitment to Christ, would you just open your heart to him today and say, Jesus, thank you that you died on the cross for me. And would you forgive my sins, come into my life, and be my Savior and Lord. Amen.